This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. We're going to begin with a bit of good news about a crucial coronavirus metric that public health experts, government officials, and others have been following closely. The variable known as r naught represents the number of new infections that stem from a single case. The COVID tracking project shows r naught is now below 1 in 48 states, and that suggests the number of cases is now shrinking. Epidemiologist and ABC News contributor Dr. John Brownstein joins us from Boston Children's Hospital. This is the epidemiological destination we've been aiming for. Yeah, I mean, the data is looking incredibly encouraging. If you just look at the surveillance numbers, uh, cases are, are on the decline, and they have been for several weeks in most parts of the country. You know, testing is ramped up. You know, we're starting to see signs that things are in better shape. Um, and clearly, that's what we need to keep this you know, epidemic under control because when the cases come down, then you know, we're seeing sort of signs that you know, transmission is coming down. And so every single case you know, might lead to less than another case. And once, once you have that, that's when things can die out. I would just, words of caution clearly, is that we want to take things slowly and reopening has only happened uh, a couple weeks ago. And so, you know, we may only see some of the impacts of that now. So room for optimism, but also, you know, we need to be cautious. And we have also been seeing some issues with data in some states like Florida and Georgia where things got mixed up. So, you know, overall, great news, but we we still need to be carefully looking at the data. Does this suggest that we have indeed flattened the curve? Can we make that statement definitively now? I think that we absolutely had an impact on the trajectory of this virus. There's no question about it. Um, what we set out to do with really, you know, challenging times of staying at home, social distancing, mask wearing, I think certainly we would be in a much different place if we hadn't done this, right? I mean, clearly we still have had a massive impact of this virus, but we've been able to generally keep our health systems under capacity. I mean, that's obviously there's some exceptions, the interventions that we put into place have worked. And now, understandably, everybody is very, very enthusiastic about getting back out. And and governors are putting in these phased plans to do this with baby steps and, and tracking and monitoring data at the same time to make sure that we can just go to you know our normal normal lives again. Dr. John Brownstein at Boston Children's Hospital. There is fresh evidence, though, of what can happen when social distancing guidelines are ignored. There has been a cluster of COVID-19 cases in Plattsburgh in the northern reaches of New York, where state university graduates were celebrating at house parties. Plattsburgh Mayor Colin Reed joins us. Nine students were confirmed to have coronavirus, right? And then 27 of their close contacts are now in quarantine? As you know, uh, many of our students, about upwards of one third of our students at our SUNY campus come from the New York City area. And uh, of 
course, they're all very keen to celebrate in the graduation this past weekend. Uh, unfortunately, a number of them also partied and congregated, and uh, we saw a large wave of infection increases, nine positive cases, and resulting in about another 27 quarantines as a consequence. That's pretty stunning because we keep hearing about young people congregating and the potential danger for spread. This seems to play that out. It really does. You know, our population is broken up really into two parts, the vulnerables, that we're very concerned about uh, those over 60, anybody with a respiratory condition, etc. But we also have to be worried about the invulnerables, the people that feel that if they do get ill, they can recover quickly, they may be asymptomatic. Uh, uh, Some of them would actually like to become ill and recover because they believe they'll be immune afterwards. Of course, these are often the same people who are the super spreaders. People are really willing to get out in the community, to congregate, to not necessarily wear the face masks that we require up here. After identifying the nine confirmed cases, you had contact tracers identify the close contacts? Correct. We have a pretty extensive contact tracing team up here, given our population, and they quickly tracked down and at least tried to get as many of the people who have been contacted by these individuals to cooperate. That's also an endorsement of contact tracing, that you're able to identify now three times as many people from these original nine. That's an important point. It really is. And, you know, our city, because of its proximity to Montreal, we're the closest major U.S. city to Montreal, and because of our very large New York City population, given our major SUNY campus here, we're kind of between the two hotspots in the entire two countries. Uh, we were in the bottom third, the worst third for infections very early on of amongst counties. And now we're in the top quarter. Uh, just about every statistics, including contact tracing, testing, et cetera, really doing a nice job that people took this all very, very seriously very early on. So anything that could set us back gives our community great cause for concern. It sounds, though, that these could have been avoided, these particular cases. Entirely avoidable. Uh, You know, obviously, we've got our police patrols and our sheriffs assisting and trying to make sure that there is no partying that really nice weekend, this past weekend, uh, but really also requires a fair amount of personal discipline, for which most people in our community have been very willing to do. Mr. Mayor, thanks. The mayor of Plattsburgh, New York, Colin Reed. We're still learning new things about the virus itself. It is now clear its effects on the body extend well beyond the lungs. We've talked on this program about the heart and the kidneys. Now doctors are trying to understand COVID-19's effect on the brain. Dr. Netta Dasmalchi joins us from George Washington University Hospital, where she's been treating coronavirus patients in the ICU. You've noticed some of those patients are exhibiting signs of delirium? Yeah, so... Some patients we have seen have been coming in with their only symptom at the time being confusion or as we called altered mental status, which means that they're just essentially not acting at their baseline. And some of the patients we've been seeing that coming in with this altered mental status or delirium have been testing positive for COVID-19 on the PCR test. A lot of us joke about an altered mental state during this time of coronavirus and lockdown measures, but delirium is a real condition. Yeah, it is a real condition, and it's something that does have a, an association with an increased risk of mortality. So typically, delirium does occur in a hospital setting. Unfortunately, um, patients who are in the hospital for a very long time, their sleep-wake cycle 
um, changes, just given that, you know, every four hours they get vitals, or if they're in the ICU, they get vitals every two hours, so they're woken up. And typically patients who are older and had higher comorbidities, or uh, they were at higher risk for delirium. Now with COVID, what we've been seeing is is not just specific to our elderly patients. Patients who are developing delirium in the hospital have been younger. Anyone was fair game, essentially, to develop this confusion. Regardless of mental health history. Exactly. And regardless of their past medical history in general. So with one of the patients we've seen... um, you know, they can come in only with the symptoms of confusion and no symptoms of trouble breathing or shortness of breath that we've been seeing with the majority of the COVID patients. And later on, their respiratory issues manifest. Oh, that's interesting. So is this yet another symptom of COVID-19 or one that's triggered by the body's immune response? Yeah, exactly. And one of the studies that was done out of Wuhan, China, they looked at all neurological symptoms. So it included change in taste, change in smell, which is something we are aware of right now. Um, And they also looked at altered mental status and delirium. And a third of patients that they evaluated did have those kinds of symptoms. Could it just be that COVID patients are seemingly staying in the hospital longer and that's just wearing on their mental state? Absolutely. That is a very, very valid point, and that is attributing to the development of delirium when they're in the hospital. So it's almost like we have two types of delirium right now with COVID that we're seeing. Either we have patients coming in who are completely altered, or we say encephalopathic, and then we have another set of patients who are developing delirium while they're in the hospital. So we have patients who have COVID that are isolated in rooms by themselves, They have people coming into the room, like the doctors and nurses and techs, coming into the room with PPE on, and that itself can be a little bit intimidating. Everyone's covering their faces and covering their bodies to protect themselves, but as a patient, that would be fearful. Family is a really big preventative measure for delirium while we're in the hospital, and now with the isolation from family and loved ones can really, really take a toll on someone's mental state. Dr. Netta Dasmalchi at George Washington University Hospital. She's part of our medical team here at ABC News. By the way, the governor of New York announced today a pilot program to increase visitors to hospitals. Hopefully that makes it easier on some of these patients. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, I know we've heard some positive news about one of the companies rushing to develop a vaccine, making some progress. Mm -hmm. So walk us through the vaccine process so we can really understand these headlines we're hearing. Well, I think the headlines, the two keywords are cautious optimism here. But let's talk about what we know in terms of some perspective. First of all, vaccines work by priming the immune system to recognize a pathogen. The shortest vaccine ever developed just for some historical perspective, took four years. Wow. Other vaccines that we all have heard of, the HPV vaccine, for example, took 15 years to develop. The flu mist vaccine took 28 years. So this is a lengthy process. Yeah. Wow. And so there are still some big questions. Tell us what we don't know right now. In terms of what we don't know, Amy, and again, remember, we're only six months into our association with this strain of virus. We don't know if the vaccine for this strain of coronavirus will be safe and effective yet. That's why they're moving into testing it in much larger numbers. We don't know how billions of doses are going to be made and distributed. And then Who will get them first? That might be our country. That might be another country that develops it. And we lastly don't know how long any immune protection 
conveyed from this vaccine will last. The good news, though, is that we are starting to see some developers do various steps in parallel, not in sequence. So potentially can save some time. But 12 to 18 months is if everything goes perfectly. And that would be truly a land speed record. Yeah. And those are huge questions that still have to be answered. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Well, Texas has seen a steady rise in COVID cases since reopening just over two weeks ago, leading some Texans to believe this is happening to too soon. And now phase two of that state's reopening has already begun. Joining us now with his take on the new rules is the mayor of Dallas, Eric Johnson. Mayor Johnson, thank you for joining us again today. We know your your governor, Greg Abbott, eased those lockdown restrictions, allowing hair and nail salons to open a week ago and gyms and manufacturing plants reopened yesterday. How do you feel Dallas is positioned for these new phases right now? Are you concerned it's too soon? Well, I think Dallas um, is in a situation right now where our cases are starting to plateau, it appears. Um, Our cases were going up for the past couple of weeks, um, and now they seem to be in the 200-a-day case number range and uh, appear to be uh, holding steady at that level. So we're hoping that they're they're plateauing, which means they'll be going down soon. Um, We also are keeping our eye on hospital capacity, and that appears to be holding steady uh, in a good place. We, We haven't exceeded 70% um, capacity in any of our hospitals in the city of Dallas in terms of hospital beds or 40% capacity for our ventilators. So that's all good news. But what we are concerned about and what I'm trying to make sure we uh, stay ahead of is uh, contact tracing and testing is critical to do this next phase. And we are not where we want to be there. I don't think any city in the United States is where they want to be. Um, So we are going to work with our federal partners, our state partners, to try to get um, a major jump up in the number of folks we're able to test and the amount of people we have doing contact tracing here so that we can open up our economy safely. Yeah, we've got the specific numbers, actually. Uh, The health officials there reported 205 new COVID cases in Dallas, six deaths over the weekend. That is, as you mentioned, less than it was before. How does that affect how Dallas plans to move forward? So what we want to do is we want to be here um, on the ground as, as the mayor. What I want is for us to, to be a partner and helpful to the reopening of the economy according to the schedule that the governor is laying out under state law. The governor gets to make that decision, and he has given every indication that he is going to um, move forward with reopening our economy at his preferred timetable. My job as the mayor of Dallas is here locally to, is to make sure that that opening is done in a safe way. So my focus is on making sure that my residents in this city know that we are not out of the woods yet. We have to continue to wear masks in public. We have to continue to practice social distancing when we're out in public. And probably most importantly, we want our vulnerable populations and anyone who's experiencing any symptoms to know that just because the economy is being reopened, so to speak, does not mean you have to rush back into um, going back to restaurants and things. If you don't have to go out and you don't and you are a vulnerable population, you shouldn't. And if you are symptomatic, you absolutely shouldn't. And then the rest of us should just use good judgment um, when we go out in public and make sure that we're doing all the same things that have helped us uh, flatten our curve here in Dallas. So we need to continue to do those things. Now, such important words for everyone to remember and to hear. We certainly appreciate your time. Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. 
During this pandemic, if you're like me, you've been cleaning your house more often and you know that cleaning supplies and disinfectants have become the hard to find items on your shopping list. So joining us now to talk about this is the chairman and CEO of SC Johnson, Fisk Johnson. Thanks for being with us. And yes, we are all seeing those empty store shelves with no cleaning products. When will we see more of your very needed and appreciated products back on the shelves? Well, hopefully you're seeing a lot of our products on the shelf today. Our factory teams have really done a Herculean job of increasing capacity to meet the demand out there. And I have to say, I'm really proud of how they've stepped up in the face of this pandemic to provide product that can help people uh, mitigate the transmission of this disease. Yeah, I can't even imagine what a Herculean task that indeed has to be. How have you ramped up your production at your manufacturing facilities during these times while you're trying to ensure your workers' safety? Well, obviously, uh, the safety of our factory teams is of paramount importance to us. Uh, We have done everything we can to institute safety protocol to protect them, whether it's safety protocol as they're entering our factories, whether it's safety protocol in operating our factories. We quarantine people that may have come into contact with people that may have the disease I've personally gone to our factories to assure myself that we're doing everything possible and ask people whether we're doing everything possible. And and so far, so good. And I'm just thrilled with the creativity people have used to increase capacity. And I have to share one example. Um, We have a team of uh, research and development people in our company that don't work in our factory that would normally be at the kind of stay-at-home, shelter-at-home group who took it upon themselves to start up a uh, production line in the factory to make hand sanitizers. They've been out there every day bottling hand sanitizers, labeling hand sanitizers so we can give those away to healthcare workers and first-line responders in our communities. And I couldn't be more proud of how they stepped up to help. And I, I have to say that's not unusual for people in our company. Have you seen any other major trends in this time? Will the pandemic have impact on your company as a whole in the space moving forward? Well, I, you know, I'll state the obvious, which I think is that, you know, people's uh, social distancing habits, hygiene habits, cleaning habits in the workplace, in, at home and other places is going to change for a considerable period of time going forward. But actually, here's my hope. You know, we have a spectrum of people in this society. We have people on one end of the spectrum who, you know, want to get out and live life for their health and well-being or people who have to work for a living to support their families. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got people who may be at greater risk from this disease or people who have greater concerns for any one of a number of reasons and, you know, and, and want to stay at home. And I just think, you know, as we move forward and reopen this economy slowly and safely, uh, that we have to come up with those solutions that accommodate everybody across that spectrum. And we have to realize that no solution is perfect. And going forward, we're not going to be able to satisfy everybody. And we have to have some tolerance and continued care and empathy for people going forward. I'm proud of the way people have stepped up in this country to to care for people who have been afflicted by this disease. And I just think we have to have that continued care, empathy, 
uh, tolerance as as we move forward into this new world that we're entering in. And that's my hope. This Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you. Glad to be here. And there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. The doctor is in, Dr. Jen Ashton, that is. Plus, the entrepreneurs with the outdoor game company pivoting to an entirely new approach in this pandemic. A small business success story when we come back. Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here with us. And Dr. Jen, as you know, big headline today. We heard from the president saying that he's been taking hydroxychloroquine for the past 10 days or so. And a lot of reaction out there to that. Let's try to move it from the political to the medical, right? You know I like to stay in my lane. So let's unpack this from the pros and cons. First of all, what does the FDA say? The FDA has said very clearly that for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, it has not been proven to be safe or effective in treating or preventing COVID-19. That's what we know right now. There are clinical trials that are recruiting patients studying hydroxychloroquine in terms of prevention. We have no data yet. Then when you look at the flip side, we know that a lot of people take hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis, for lupus. It is generally a safe medication, but generally does not mean zero risk. And we know that there is potentially an associated risk of a cardiac arrhythmia or irregular heartbeat known as long QT syndrome. That is why when the FDA granted it emergency use authorization for COVID-19 treatment, they said in hospitalized patients. So you and I have discussed this before. It's always risk benefit. You know, we we do use off-label medications in medicine, and it should be a discussion between a doctor and her or his patient um, and to weigh those risks and benefits. But right now, there is zero data to support its use in terms of prevention. All right, we have another question. Do medical professionals think that the actual numbers of COVID-19 infected people could be double or triple more than reported cases. And it's not just medical professionals, Amy. It's top epidemiologists, you know, people who use computer models to f- track curves and rates. They can estimate that it might be 10 times as many confirmed cases because, again, we've heard that tip of the iceberg phenomenon. So many people infected have no symptoms. Therefore, they're not seeking medical attention. They're not being tested. They're not demonstrating confirmed cases. So the short answer is absolutely it can be way higher. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Next question. What countries or areas in the world are American medical professionals focusing on right now in terms of stopping the pandemic? The big picture is the entire world, because this is a global pandemic. It's a global health emergency and crisis. And we've said it from the beginning. What happens in other parts of the world has either a direct or an indirect effect on us with travel, with supply chain, with needs for medications, treatments, you name it, it all affects us. So people are looking at Sweden to see what's happening with their rates. They're looking at Asia. They're looking at countries with poor infrastructures um, and continents like Africa, They're looking at India. Literally, they're looking everywhere. All right. And I really can't wait to hear your answer to this question. Is an effective vaccine the only hope for a return to normal? Short answer, according to public health officials and infectious disease specialists, no. Remember that it's part of our arsenal. It's a very important part. But there are other things like therapeutics, medications, not only to treat, but to possibly prevent that we're looking at. We don't know the natural history of this virus. Will it peter out? Will it come in waves? Will it go through ups and downs? 
We don't know that yet. If Remember back in 2009, 2010, H1N1 right. was a global pandemic. Now it's just part of a flu strain that we see every year. So we don't know about that. And we also don't know about herd immunity, which usually requires 60 to 70 percent of a population to have been naturally infected or vaccinated for the virus to peter out. We we're not know, close to that. Not even close. So we don't know any of those things. Vaccines, for sure, very important part, but not the sole hope. Okay. All right. Dr. Jen Ashton, as always, thank you so you much. Bet. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, this pandemic has created all sorts of challenges. What do you do when you build tailgate games and there are no sporting events? Well, you pivot. That's exactly what our next guest did. Joining us now are the co-founders of Stand Up Stations and Toss Up Events. Welcome, Alex and Kelsey Carroll. Thank you both for being with us. And I know when this pandemic hit uh, and essentially shut down your business, what went through your minds? Yeah, it was just a lot of fear. You know, we had spent three years building Toss Up, you know, putting our blood, sweat and tears in it. We had two kids during that time period. And then in one day, it just evaporated. Wow. So just a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, poof. And then suddenly you come up with this remarkable idea to pivot your business to sanitizing stations. How did that come about? Well, we knew uh, when events did eventually come back, and, and they will, that safety equipment like hand sanitizer stations would be critical. And so we thought, how could we use our people our vendors, our relationships to contribute something to these venues. And so we came up with customizable hand sanitizer stations that businesses and brands could put their logo on, comes with the dispenser, and that's how we did it. That's amazing. So where do you make these sanitizing stations? Yes, we actually make them right here in Dallas, Texas. And as I mentioned before, our whole business evaporated on March 11th. And that's been the most encouraging thing is that we make it here in Dallas. We were able to bring back all of our employees were able to hire more people at our manufacturing facility and just being able to bring jobs back. It's been the most rewarding thing that we've done so far. Yeah, that is so awesome. I want to hear how responsive companies have been. How long does it take to receive a station? Give me a sense of how your business is going. Yeah, the response has been super positive. I mean, all people need to do is go to standupstations.com, fill out some information, and just in about three to five business days, we ship them out nationally. We've actually been doing free local delivery here in yeah. Dallas just to help out small business owners that are getting ready to reopen and reopen safely. Wow. I mean, you went from being fearful and stressed out, filled with anxiety, to now killing it in this new space. So what is your message to all those people who may have ideas, they want to get started, but they're, they're stuck? Any words of positivity, hope, advice? Yeah, we sat on the couch, watched Netflix, and felt sorry for ourselves for a couple <laughs> days, a lot of tears. And I would say my message is get off the couch, stand up, get out, and find a way to get your employees back. Work hard, put one foot in front of the other, be faithful every day. And that's what we did. And it's been it's just been so rewarding. Yeah, it's definitely awesome to have something positive to focus on. And so I, that would be my advice, too, is just look at look out into your community, see if there's a need, see how you can use what you have now and what you know to contribute something positive. Wow, it's really incredible. What have your employees told you? <laughs> I mean, they've been so grateful, you know, and I think the employees, we can't do this without the people that we're working with. Uh, when we launched StandUpStations.com, my operations director, Ben Monk, literally 
We got so many orders. If, if he wasn't there, we wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, so the 13 people that are sitting in our office right now that are going to eventually be, they're working their butts off to make this happen. And so happy to be doing so, I'm sure. Alex and Kelsey, thank you both. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Our kickoff to emergency services week honoring frontline first responders. And today, the unusual alliance between Sherry and Taquan, the RV in the family driveway at the heart of this connection. So my name is Trey Quan Gregory. I work for Delta Response Team. I am one of the 911 contract employees. Anything that needs to rescue squad attention, we are the ones that respond to it. My name is Sherry Clower. My husband and I both work from home a lot, and we're not in the healthcare industry. My sister-in-law actually sent me a link for the RVs for MDs Facebook page, just out of the blue. I found them on a website called RVs for MDs. That group, I must say, has been a lifesaver. We posted that we have a camper available. We can't use it right now. Sherry and Walter Kluwer found me online. We spoke to him on the phone that day, and it just seemed like a perfect match for him. He had space in his driveway. I told Sherry, I said, honestly, I know nothing about a camper. <laughs> I've never been camping. Now she stopped me. She said, it's okay. She said, I promise you, my husband will talk you through everything. It's, it's so good to be able to just see my family and not have to stay at a hotel not have to put them in harm's way. It seemed like such a smart way for the frontline workers to keep their families safe while making still wave to their kids and see them at a distance. You know, he has young children himself. Uh, some of them have had medical issues in the past. He himself has had some medical issues in the past. Last year, I had a heart attack back in July. And it's just a high risk because I have heart failure. You can call me an overkill of the situation, but I'm I'm the person that go into the house with goggles, masks, anything and everything that I can put on. I'm walking in the house like a Martian, literally. <laughs> his love for his family is so strong, and his love for his community is so strong. People call 911 at the worst times of their lives, and if you can make a difference within that time period that you are transporting them to the hospital, it just means, you know, it means a lot. We're happy to be able to finally support the effort <laughs> and for us to be able to support this family and try to help keep his wife and children safe while he's out, keeping our community safe. <laughs> Good people really do exist in the world. I really consider them true family now. Even after this pandemic, they will always be family. Kwan, just so much admiration for you and so much respect for the love that you have for your family and your community. You know, the flowers are here cheering you on, just encouraging you every day. Oh, that is an amazing story. Congratulations to this team of helpers and to all of the emergency service workers who are right there on the front lines for all of us. Four weeks ago, a group of college students came together to help prevent food waste and fight hunger during the coronavirus pandemic. They started a not-for-profit grassroots movement called FarmLink, which is helping to link farmers to food banks. And here to tell us all about it is one of the co-founders, 21-year-old Stanford University student James Knopf. James, thanks so much. It's so impressive because not only are you finishing your last semester of your sophomore year right now, you're managing to do all of this among finals. So explain for us the process of FarmLink and how it works. Right now, millions of pounds of food are going to waste on farms all across the country as they struggle to adapt to close schools, hotels, and restaurants. And at the same time, you're seeing unprecedented demand at food banks, miles-long lines 
And so what FarmLink does is we connect those farms with surplus to the food banks in need. And so we do that by r- raising money externally to pay, you know, the wages of farm workers and truck drivers to get that food off the farm and into the food bank. What inspired you to start FarmLink? We just wanted to help our local food bank. We, you know, we volunteered there and we were seeing images that, you know, they were really struggling and they were asking if they could raise money. And so it just started. We just wanted to link one farm to them to help them out. And then when we were able to do that, we realized that the need really was everywhere and we should try to do it as much as we can. Yeah, that is amazing. And speaking about that, how much food have you delivered? So right now we're moving about 250,000 pounds of food a week. Wow. And we started about four weeks ago. Wow. So what states are you providing FarmLink services to right now? FarmLink is working in over 15 states, um, including California, New York, Texas, so really all around the United States. That is amazing. And I know so many people are thinking, how can I help? How can I contribute? So tell us how we can do that. If you go to farmlink.org, you can see ways to get involved. You can, you know, find your local food bank. You can go volunteer there. You can give money. You can do whatever you can. Like every bit counts. And I know that, James, this came out as a brainchild of the coronavirus. But do you have hopes to continue this initiative beyond this crisis? What What's next for you and for this incredible organization? Absolutely. You know, the, the problem of food waste isn't new. One third of all food in the United States goes to waste. So our goal right now is, you know, to support the food banks that are facing unprecedented demand. But we hope, you know, that we can help past the coronavirus. You know, like food banks, they've been on the front lines of food insecurity for way longer than any of us in our organization have been alive. And so we want to find ways, you know, that we can help them not one year down the line, but 10, 20 years down the line, because this is not a new problem and it's not going away. And you are helping to solve it in the best of ways. James Knopf, thank you so much for all that you were doing. Thank you so much for joining us and inspiring us all. Thank you. All right, we're turning now to Dr. Jen with some final thoughts for the day. Dr. Yeah, Jen. I wanted to focus on how to deal with sadness because, again, I feel like this is a time where almost everyone is acknowledging some degree of sadness in their lives. Um, as you know, there's a big social media challenge going on right now for Mental Health Awareness Month called How Are You Doing Really? And I just did mine, and in my post I talked about feeling sad and scared at times. And I think that whether it's because you've been physically affected or medically affected by this pandemic or financially affected or socially affected or, you know, you've had life experiences or events postponed or canceled that you may never get back, recognizing, normalizing, acknowledging those feelings is the first step, talking about it, communicating about it. And then what I try to do is replace it almost immediately with something positive. And for me, I have to tell you that coming to this studio every day to get to work with you, even though we've been working together for almost 10 years, um, really helps any feelings of sadness. Oh, that, that I just have. that just made me feel super happy. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> You're Jen. welcome. I feel the same. And you know, I do think it's important. It's interesting we're talking about this because yesterday, and I am generally a very positive, happy person, especially when you've had some pretty traumatic yeah. life experiences. You're forced into a, a new normal of gratitude, which helps in these moments. But even still, I felt that anxiety and just that powerlessness. Yeah. Um, and especially when I think about my kids and what's next and what to do and how to deal with this, how to talk to them. And you start to really actually spiral. You can feel yourself. And so I like yeah. to go for a run. I like to go for a hike to get outside and really just appreciate the beauty around me. And then obviously invest with the people we're yeah. quarantined with because we at least <laughs> That's right. have one another. But we were even saying sometimes it's harder 
because when something individually happens to you, you can get support from people who are stronger and in a better place. But now we're all yeah. in the same position. And I think that's what really makes this different. For, for me, I agree with you, and for so many people, is that it's not just happening to us. It's happening to everyone. And you and I are also in that unique situation where we are concerned about our children and we're also concerned about our parents. So, um, you know, we always are thinking about other people, but this time we're really sandwiched into thinking of of two generations that are vulnerable in different ways, but really vulnerable. I know when so many of us can't reach out or be with the people we love, uh, I'm thinking about my 97-year-old grandfather a lot, who's by himself in that nursing home. And my mom, you know, calls me and says, that's the hardest part of this, that yeah. I can't touch him. I can't. He, t- he was, they communicated through the window and he said the only thing he wanted was a hug from his Joni. Aww. And that's what we can't give him right now. I know. And you know, I have a, I have a patient who's 76 years old. And when I went through the darkest period of my life, just three years ago, she said to me, and I'll never forget this. Life is not about avoiding pain. Life is about mm-hmm. learning how to deal with the pain and living through it. And I think we're all getting that lesson right now. I love that. It's important to remember. Thanks for this conversation was important. I appreciate it. And we appreciate you. And I appreciate you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.